0: I'm Drew Miller, and you're listening to The Second Muse, How Songs Become Songs, brought to you by the Rabbit Room Podcast Network. Today I am joined by Chris Slayton and Ben Shive. Chris goes by the stage name Son of Laughter for all kinds of excellent and scripturally insightful reasons. He writes songs of impeccable density, yet they seem to happen in a flash. Listening to a Son of Laughter song feels a bit like plunging into some corner of Middle Earth. There's more to take in than is possible in a three-minute song, and even still, those three minutes feel as if they have been exerted from a timeless, never-ending landscape. In his EP The Mantis and the Moon, Slayton's lyrical skill is augmented by producer Ben Shive, who shares this gift of extrapolation in the realm of sound, taking musical ideas and riffing on them to construct meticulous sonic worlds replete with expressive melodies. Shive has worked with artists such as Andrew Peterson, Audrey Asad, Colony House, The Grey Havens, and Ellie Holcomb, bringing songs to life every step of the way. In this episode, we focus specifically on the Son of Laughter song, The Fiddler. I think a large reason that I wanted to name this podcast The Second Muse is because when we think about music and the arts in general, it's so easy to think about the first muse of inspiration, and I think that's kind of the common narrative, um, that you just are inspired and write a song and it comes out perfectly. And that's the end of the story. And there's no, like it's all honeymoon phase and there's no real hard work involved in being baffled and being obstructed and having your course deflected. And so, um, this whole podcast is about the second muse and our encounters with that particular voice. Um, so I'd love to start just generally speaking how would you characterize uh, your relationship to the second muse in particular? I think I'm getting used to it. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> uh, uh, another way I've heard it just kind of described was when Leif Anger, uh, when he came and spoke at Hutchmoot, he said, persistence is the landing strip of the muse. And so I guess uh. he's re- referring to that second muse of just being relentlessly chipping away at things. And for me, what I think it's looked like is... Chipping away in the face of things, literally like doors just being closed in my face, like things that I can't really control. Yeah. Opportunities um, that look promising and then it doesn't work out. Yeah. Um, uh, like, well, when we started on when I started on No Stories Over, like part of that was that Ben and I started working on it together. And it was so difficult for us to work out our schedules because I'm Mm -hmm. a high school teacher and it's like really limited. So in that case, it was, again, just like literally working up against physical constraints Mm -hmm. (laughs) that were keeping things from happening. But then the other part of it is working against self-doubt, like uh, the, the part that comes up and says, you know, this is stupid, which is kind of I've learned is inevitable in the studio and in the writing process. Yeah. <laughs> the voice that says like this is not going to be helpful. Uh it's too dramatic. So at some point I have to shut off that or just stop paying attention to it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh and just keep making in the direction
0: that I set out. I mean that reminds me of our conversation we had about the hurricanes. And I mean that just blew my mind that you had this huge story and and you're kind of taking me through the iterations of bringing it to life and articulating it and what each verse does is it always a fight to like articulate the idea in the best possible way um, Is are there any moments within that kind of fighting tooth and nail um, process that just kind of are gifts that just mm-hmm. come to you in the middle of it as well
1: or how's I remember that I was uh, teaching the labors of Hercules with my 7th grade class and one of his labors oh it's been a long time I can't remember the name of the actual creature but it's a shapeshifter and he's mm-hmm. trying to he has to get some kind of answer from him and so he holds on to the shapeshifter and the shapeshifter turns into all kinds of things before it finally gives like fire even like you know before it finally gives him what he needs and I remember specifically using that language to describe the Fiddler when I was writing it oh, uh, yeah. Was it was like there was this one thing I knew it had an answer that I wanted and I didn't let go of it for a year and just that was the only, the only song that I worked on for a year and I wasn't yeah. going to stop until it did what I needed it to do. I saw it as a wrestling match with this thing that kept changing uh, as I was holding on to it.
0: Well, let's take a listen to The Finished Fiddler.
2: Entering
1: through automatic doors Into the everyday race across the terminal floor Past the shoe shop, past the magazine stand The winners win a ride and it all begins again But over in the corner as we come and go The fiddler's tuning up and tightening his bow Cause every day he descends to this maze underground His violin and summons its sound. The audience echoed down the long tunnel of the halls. It creates a cathedral and subway walls. And a distant light arrives through windows, drawn in melodies that we had long forgotten. So who has the money or the time to wait?
0: Before we continue, a special word of thanks to our sponsor, Lipscomb University. Lipscomb is a nationally ranked research university located in Nashville. They are an intentionally courageous and gracious Christian community. At Lipscomb, you engage top quality academics integrated with faithful spiritual direction, preparing you for your life's work. Learn more at lipscomb.edu. And now back to our podcast. One thing I love about music is how you experience time differently in in music and in songs. Um, And I think that's a huge element of this because it's three minutes long. And it feels like it's 10 minutes long to me. Like as I'm listening to it, so much happens and it's, it's so, um, it's so dense and I feel like I'm transported somewhere in such a way that the passing of time is a different thing, you know? So as a listener, just playing this song, having never heard it before and listening to it, it's, it's an experience of density and complexity and yet the way that it flows is so light like it it doesn't feel like it's weighing me down it feels like it's just kind of skidding across the water so chris how did you start riding the fiddler what happened to begin it
1: so i was in a uh, cabin uh, by myself trying to figure out how to finish grace's gold which was also in a very weird place at that time And I was procrastinating with this guitar riff that I really liked. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, And it felt very metropolitan to me. Like I knew it had something to do with the city. Like I remember Mm -hmm. the line was something like the city has a pulse and a conscience too, or something like that. And I kept repeating that and playing that guitar riff. I remember at one point standing in Ben's kitchen and he was talking me through what he was working on with Grace's gold. And I, just kind of explained to him my vision for the fiddler because we had the guitar part and I was explaining to him. And I said, like, I remember saying that the walk up, um, was going to be a, uh, a businessman who's riding up an elevator, (laughs) Mm. uh, to the top of the skyscraper where he was going to be meeting some type of, um, like the CEO of the company and seeking essentially his blessing and how his whole like work life was going to be about seeking the blessing of the father like like blessing for jacob you know yeah um or the blessing that jesus gets when he's baptized so i kind of like saw all life is or a lot of human behavior is being motivated by that desire for blessing imagining like how that applies to someone working in the city and like chasing after something yeah uh, and then I came across the Joshua Bell story, um, Pearls Before Breakfast, uh, which was an article written by the Washington Post, I think in 2007. And uh, that was where the the Washington Post put Joshua Bell, who many people would see as the world's greatest violinist, in a subway station at rush hour and put him in plain clothes uh, just to see how many people would pay attention to him. And uh, by the end of the experiment, there were uh, a handful of people who had hesitated, but many of the people that were interviewed didn't even know there was a violinist in the room with them. So then I started, like, I took that idea of, like, people in the city who are moving around that are hungry for blessing and started thinking about it in the context of this, of Joshua Bell uh, and how they could be possibly missing something. Yeah. Um, in trying to seek after this, this thing in the wrong place and then I started thinking about my prayer life like it started becoming like a metaphor for when I get distracted when I'm praying of like mm-hmm. my mind having this just like flurry of thoughts and desires and things that I'm hungry for chasing after um, once I kind of got those two ideas together that was really when I started writing it and what I did was I would at that point our son Shepherd was pretty young Uh, Like he was like less than a year old. Um, And my wife would, Lindsay would uh, let me in on Saturday mornings, go to the public library and just read and try to take tons of notes on, in this case, this song. So I remember reading about brutal architecture in LaFont Plaza Square. I remember reading about like a lot about Stradivarius and like the building of his violins, because the main thing was I was trying to figure out what is the angle that I could hit on that would yeah. actually bring these things together in a way that makes sense to me? And by the end of like a year, I had like sixty pages of notes on this word doc wow. um, and uh, and and also like pictures, uh, a lot of different paintings that I came across.
0: That um method of just immersing yourself in the world that you're about to try to. I mean, this is the rabbit room. I'm just going to go ahead and make this comparison, but like Tolkien in making um, Middle Earth is not stopping at any detail. Like he knows where every mm-hmm. rock on the ground is, right? And that's like largely the difference between him and like Narnia. You know, like Narnia is beautiful. Nothing against Narnia. It's different. Like it's more of an impressionistic mm-hmm. like portrayal of a place. And then Middle Earth is this extremely concrete like you know everything about it and so i don't know you're just reminding me of like more of the middle earth side of things of just like i'm gonna know everything about this place before i describe like this three minute blip of it right so <laughs> so that's your that's your take on on making a world definitely
1: okay. and you know one of the songs that Camp and referenced Ben and I talked about frequently was the Brotherhood of Man by Innocence Mm -hmm. Mission. How they just have these, just like one line communicates so much with a simple image and it takes you through so many different places into a much larger idea too, but very concretely. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was... I always had that hope all along is I'll be able to take all this stuff and distill it into something. Nobody will have to know about all of this other stuff behind mm-hmm. it.
0: <laughs> but They'll maybe um, feel it. And that's kind of some of the hope, right? Sure. Like, feel the weight of it. In Absolutely. That line. Absolutely.
1: Just thinking about it in terms of its own fiction. Mm-hmm. And then I came up with the idea of like, Oh, this is not every, the whole point is that it's the ordinary that, that we're skipping over all the mm-hmm. time. So that's when I made it a fiddler that just comes in every day and, and does his thing. I didn't feel like the guitar was coming even close to fleshing out the world that I was feeling like deeply and internally with the song. Yeah. Which is why I was really excited with working with Ben on it.
2: We were really listening he he had this band called The Books that he really liked, which I got inspired by who had this song called Tokyo or something where it was just like it felt like it was this mandolin playing but it felt like the mandolin wasn't playing like they had found a passage of someone playing a mandolin chopped up each note wow. and and rearranged them so it felt acoustic but it felt electric at the same time and gotcha. we were really or digital at the same time That's really cool. fascinated with that idea so I think like the little clip that you just heard was that that was the sound yeah. of us kind of piecing guitar together one note at a time but there's also a live pass of him playing but I think that's a microcosm of what we were doing maybe kind of on the whole record but on this song for sure Sure, is this sort of like um it's both things living in the same world. It's like very digital and it's very acoustic at the same time, mm-hmm. which kind of makes sense too for even what the lyric is doing because it's, it's the this lyric about this beautiful organic thing happening in the middle of the very sort of technological reality of, of the moment. And so they're, they're existing in the same place. Um, really so cool. you've got these live strings happening, and then the programming is very. I was listening to Tom York, The Eraser, a lot of the time, so it's very like glitchy and small, mm-hmm. um, and which I th- actually I'm I think that when you said that it feels like the song is gliding, I feel like the programming helps with that because the programming isn't big sounds hardly ever, and it's
0: just these, these small little... subdivisions, just little little birds pecking, you know. So one one element weaving through Wendell Berry's essay, poetry and marriage is the idea of fidelity and staying faithful to the original idea of, of the poem, um, but innovating within it. So, so it sounds to me like the guitar part is the anchor is this, um, kernel that you want to develop and be faithful to in the extrapolation of this entire world of sound that Mm -hmm. we ended up with. So could you, um, sort of take us through uh, and I think this would probably be more of a question for you Ben um, that extrapolation process and opening up the song past the guitar and taking elements of what the guitar is already doing by yeah. ways to augment that with right. so many sounds that are happening
2: well obviously we wanted there to be strings on it because it's about a fiddler and, sure. and Chris had that main melody and probably a lot of other parts of the melody we really collaborated on these string arrangements but mm-hmm. you can you can hear, I think you can sense this, that there's a fiddler and there's also a string section. Yeah. And they're kind of separate things in a way. One of the little building blocks of making, creating an arrangement, I think, is working with subdivisions. And so it's like as you push things forward, you want to develop subdivisions over time. So a subdivision would be like a word for When you divide the beat up more, you know, um, to not get too technical. So, even in that little clip, you can hear how, as it starts to rise, the cellos start playing those eighth notes staccato. that helps to kind of propel us forward as the subdivisions get smaller and smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, that was another thing that was meant to sort of juxtapose against the acoustic stuff that was going on. Mm-hmm. Like, a lot of the keyboard sounds in there are meant to sound very digital. So, like, that one sounds like something that could come out of, like, a calculator if you push the right button, you know? <laughs> um, and there's, <laughs> yeah. there's some other... Uh, there's, like, a pad in there that you can hear that feels very, like, grainy. It feels like it's, like... Yeah. Grr- I know what you're talking about. Like yeah, so so those sounds and one good thing about doing that is it helps everything have its own little niche and not just yeah. all blend together. Like if you've ever tried to put like four acoustic guitars and a mandolin and a whatever on a song, it just becomes this traffic jam of sound. Yeah. But if you can kind of put together elements that are very, very different, take up different frequency ranges, mm-hmm. then you can actually fit more things in if that's what your goal is, you know. Right. And it needed to feel very busy.
1: There's just busyness and chaos and so much going on. But then the strings are this kind of like undercurrent of peace or shalom or however you want to think about it, that clearly the the characters need to be connecting with and the fiddler's kind of like calling them back to it.
2: And another way you tell that story is with dynamics. So it's like after that big chromatic walk up where the where all those subdivisions are happening, then what do you have? You have a section where it's just like Yeah. Very simple background and a and a melody, fewer instruments, less subdivision, Mm. quieter dynamic. It all Mm. creates that that feeling, which is what the lyric is doing at that moment. It's like it's like that's the moment where we kinda hear the voice of the Holy Spirit in the calm, Mm. you know. So it's kind of painting that picture with dynamics and instrumentation and subdivisions.
1: with every
0: struggle, Let the earth be. And you're just saying the panoramic views of finished that line lyrically. For uh, me. Backlit
1: billboards of panoramic views illuminate new ways to make old wishes true.
0: Oh man! Can you talk for just a minute about illuminating old ways, right? New ways to make old wishes true.
1: Yeah. So I was just thinking about again, like. As I'd mentioned before, like the I felt like the characters or the people were hungry for something very ancient like mm-hmm. blessings uh, and I saw kind of the people in the metro as chasing those things and also these you know the the backlit billboards that are kind of surrounding you when you're going through a subway station yeah. are all these almost like promises that were led to like oh, that's where I'm gonna find it oh, that's where I'm gonna find it you know yeah. you have those things. Uh, around you and um, one of the ways I remember too with that line just about the programming that's what that sound is supposed to be the kind of fuzzy sound that comes in there was we, we were like we need a sound for fluorescent light bulbs
2: Yeah, yeah. And at the end of that, you hear the little ding pong, which I think was the sound effect we found of people getting off a train or like a... a, a like an elevator. I think it was an elevator a, thing or something. Okay. Like I thought it was part of the. There was this. There's a spoken word thing that you didn't hear when we played it back a minute ago, but it's this guy going, stand clear of the closing doors. And yes. there's a ding pong in yeah. that thing, in that little announcement. And so I don't think we were able to get that cleanly out of that announcement. So we just created it, you yeah. know, with a synthesizer or whatever.
0: Yeah. As a listener, even without knowing about all of the research you did, I can hear the 60 pages of notes in the three minutes of yeah. the song. You know, right. like I can yeah, I feel so, yeah. all of that as kind of the backdrop to the song Westerners
1: itself. Gaze. Backlit billboards of panoramic views illuminate new ways to make old witches true. This
0: episode was recorded and engineered by Evan Redwine and Asher Peterson. For more episodes of The Second Muse and for more great podcasts, visit rabbitroom.com slash podcasts. Thanks for listening.